0: all right so first some fun and this uh has application coming up okay so one of these is the original it's mona lisa by the way if you have no art sense at all you still know this is mona lisa one of these is the original one of these is a forgery so which one I know. So, when I first looked at this, I'm like, a brooch? Would Michelangelo put a brooch? No. So, yeah, this is the correct one. All right. So, that was a warm-up. It's easy. That was an easy one. All right. Uh, now, this is the painting, American Gothic. Which one is the real and which one is the forgery? Yeah, I couldn't tell. I had to cheat on this one, but um, so there's a cool little website where there's like twelve of these, and you get to pick, and it shows you what you got right, and then you get a score at the end. It's pretty fun. Any, all right, come on. You got to somebody. You got to guess. On the, the one on the your left. Oh yeah, number one, number two. All votes for number one, the original. All right, Irene, good job, because you're... No. <laughs> the, only, the only difference I could find, I scoured it a bit, is uh, she's her dress is striped in this one. All right, so getting harder now. It's one of my favorite paintings of all time, actually, and... Oh, I didn't even notice the earring. Yeah. I'm going to have to cheat here. Which one is? Okay. So this is one and this is two. And the real one is two. I have in my notes on the right. So I'm thinking it's my right, I hope. Whatever. If you spent millions of dollars, and you got the wrong one, right? So why are we doing this? There's a false Christ in this world, and this is what he does. He portrays himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, the beast that we're going to be looking into, the Antichrist, man of sin, man of lawlessness. He has 30 titles in Scripture. Uh, and there's a reason there's a reason why he's so prevalent is that this is Satan's masterpiece. okay He's a man, he's a human as is Christ. He's a king as is Christ. He rules a kingdom as does Christ. He portrays himself as a savior as does Christ. And so he does he, he's a copy. And without the Word of God, you know, when you and I look into him and Christ, it is so obvious where the differences lie. There's some of the differences that are not so obvious, though. We're going to have one of those today. We'll have some fun with that. But a great lessons. You would think that you would be learning the Christian way of life from the false Christ. And you actually, you do. Because he has ways that can very subtly and deceptively deceive us. And we want to make sure that we're not deceived. And that's what he does. Satan is a deceiver. It's his title. And, uh, and so, we uh, learn a lot about what makes the real king special and wonderful by seeing the character Of the forgery, and when I prepared this lesson, I—that's where I started. I started with a certain character of the forgery, and where it led me just was wonderful. You know, there's there's a path God takes you on. He said, "Well, this is wrong. You see why this is wrong?" And you say, "Well, yeah, obviously." Well, let me show you what's right, and what's wrong is a forgery of what is right, and so you can see, and we'll see that. Uh, All right, we will pray. Uh, Let me first announce no class next week, Tuesday through Thursday. So that's the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. There'll be no classes. We'll be back on Sunday. Um, Also, on top of, uh, I'm sure we all know about uh, Lahaina in Maui and the the awful fire that was there. And uh, I hope you're praying for them Uh, and Also in Pakistan, uh, and I've gotten some updates from uh, Fazl John, who is an evangelist for Grace Bible Church Pakistan. He's the the lead guy there, and he is in Pakistan right now. And there are roving mobs of thugs who are attacking uh, Christian homes and Christian churches in Pakistan. And the last update that I heard from him is that they were roughly about 30 miles away from where his church is. They have a church in an art orphanage in Pakistan. So that's a Grace Bible Church, Pakistan. Um, and they have a base here in Arizona in, in America. And they've, they've, for years, done a lot of great work. Uh, so if you keep them in prayer. Uh, thirdly. We are in the process of establishing a prayer list that can be and will be uh, sent out by cell phone uh, uh, to anyone who wants to pray. So um, what what you can be a part of is a prayer, not a prayer, a prayer, and if you want, you'll receive a prayer list, Uh, I don't know how often, but probably as soon as it gets updated and then you will have a list of people in our ministry or relatives and loved ones by which you can pray for. Uh, we'll also give a, a vehicle by which you can submit prayer requests. If you don't want to receive the prayer list, then you can uh, submit prayer requests. And just basically just go onto the website at letters, which is, goes to me, and I'll pass those on. Uh, Sue Halverson in San Francisco is going to head up the Volunteered to. Thank you, Sue. <laughs> she doesn't know what she got herself into. But, uh, no, truly, thank you And um, in that. So if you want to be a part of the prayers to receive the prayer list, let me know. Email me, and we'll comp- comprise a list. And uh, if you have prayer requests, same thing. Just email me with them, and we'll get them on the prayer list. All right? If you have any questions about that. I'm terrible at explaining this stuff, you know, obviously. Let me know. All right, let's open up in prayer and we'll get into our singing. Let's uh, thank God for uh, his word in our church and our gathering, which is always special uh, to be together as a body to learn of our Lord and Savior and to be instructed in his way and his word, uh, of course, with humility and reverence. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you and you alone are our Savior, our King, our Lord, our Father. Through your Son, you have made us, who have believed upon him, family members. We are members of your family, possessing your name forever. (coughs) We are members of your kingdom. And although the kingdom is not here on earth, and there are many kingdoms proclaiming to be kingdoms of peace and righteousness, None of them are, but yours. We are members of that kingdom, and someday that kingdom will be here on earth. But until that time, you have given us the power through your indwelling, through your word, by which we can live in the manner of the kingdom, in the greatness of what makes the kingdom so wonderful. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for the gift of your word that opens up our hearts to the real meaning of what you have given us through him. We ask, Father, through your spirit, each of us would be enlightened by your word today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All rise, please.
1: like the first bird. Praise for the singing. Praise for the morning. Praise for the spring.
0: In 2 Thessalonians 2, there are a lot of uh, conflicts or differences between the false Christ who uh, we'll be referring to. I I guess it depends on what mood I'm in (laughs) and what name I use. something weird on my screen. Excuse me. I'll probably turn something off. Uh, that one. Let's try that. No. Nope. Hold that one second. I did it. Thanks, Alan. I appreciate that. I need to practice that. <laughs> every time I do, every few months I do that, I'm like, "It's that one? All right, thank you. Um, the uh, The false Christ, there's so many things, and it's wonderful. One of the things we're going to look at today is one world government. I think, well, what has that got to do with me? Well, it actually reveals uh, the difference between The one, the false Christ, who wants to take and the true Christ who wants to give. And this is manifested in what we really call imperialism. You know, that's a one world government. And this is not a novel idea to uh, the, the tribulation. This has been attempted over and over. Every time fail, and it will fail again. The thing about the beast in the tribulation is that he garnishes control over more land and people than anyone ever. But the idea of it, what motivated it, has always been around. And hence, that's why the same things that run the mind of this man, Satan's masterpiece is what he is. is the same things that tempt you and me, because they've always been around. They're a part of the character of sin. They're a part of the character of what sin produces, which is selfishness, self-centeredness, greed, desire not to give, but to receive. And what did our Lord say about giving and receiving? Which one is better? Why did he say that? You know, why is it better to give? or more glorious to give than it is to receive. Why is that true? It just uh, people will say, well, you know, I know that guy, you know, I know you I've heard about them, they're unselfish. And by the way, unselfish is a tricky word because people can be unselfish and very prideful at the same time. Unselfishness does not really get to the heart of the matter of giving. It doesn't. I mean, it's the opposite of the sin of selfishness, true. But the the, the the true word that describes giving is charity. Charity gives without any thought to self. Unselfishness can be, I'm going to give, and you better recognize it. That kind of idea. Do you expect people to give to you? And I had to ask myself this, and man, oh man, in the depths of my soul... Do I expect people to do the right thing concerning me? And I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get in their face if they don't, but I am in my heart going to judge the heck out of them because it's right that you do that for me. And it is. It is. Say you're in a role that you're to do something for someone who is, who is in authority. You're under their authority. So say a child or a wife, and you're to obey as a child, and you're to submit as a wife. And you don't. And your husband looks at you and says, maybe he doesn't say it to your face, but you should do that. And he judges. And his judgment is right. But is that giving? And you see, while it is right, the response to it by the one in authority or whatever, whoever, your response to that which others ought to do for you in terms of which bridges on to, I mean, ranges the gamut from crankiness to bitterness to actual anger is wrong. Because... That's not a part of the kingdom. This kingdom, oh my God, it's so rampant. It's ridiculous in our kingdom, in the world, in which people expect, especially now. We've had uh, two generations or at least one generation of very privileged people who expect everything to be handed to them without an ounce of work or lifting a finger. And God forbid you don't give it. But that's an extreme. I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about devoted Christians who say, you know, I, I need, I should be given, and it's right, materials. How about attention? You're ignoring me. That's not right. Thanks, thanks. Just saying thanks. You know, there's the unselfish person. Ah, I can do this. Doing all this stuff. Nobody's noticing. I don't mean here. Or in, well, actually, it shouldn't, it shouldn't matter anywhere. But I'm doing and I'm doing and I'm doing and I'm serving and I'm serving and I'm serving. And the people I'm serving, they don't even see it. Am I to expect thanks? It would be right for them to give it. But who am I? See, I want to receive. And then my whole life can become about that. And then I become a crank. And I'm worse than when I was doing wrong. Basically, when I was doing wrong and I didn't expect anyone to thank me for it, (laughs) as I knew it was wrong, when I started doing right and I became a crank because no one expected it, I am in a worse position. Recognition. Affirmation. People are to do chores. People aren't doing their chores. They're not doing their due diligence. Do you say to yourself, well, it's right, only right that they do so. But you see, when you learn the heart of the true king, that's going to change that, which seems right. It's a forgery. It seems right, but it's wrong. It's a false mind. The faults in this case is made to look very much like the new. And so in his plan of becoming sovereign master of creation, Satan, his desire. I mean, in essence, this is what he wants, to be sovereign master of all creation. I don't know how he thinks he's supposed to pull it off, but that's not my concern. It is a fact. And he creates his masterpiece and puts him in or seats him in absolute power. And that will happen when and this is this is a, such the irony of human history. You see, Satan is after all sovereign power, and he can't put his man masterpiece, man of power in the seat of power until God allows him to. So do you really have sovereign power if you're waiting for God to give you the permission to put your man there? So look at second Thessalonians two six. And you know what restrains him now, so that, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed. You see that? He cannot put his man of power in power until God takes the restraint out of the way. We assume the restraint to be God the Holy Spirit would be the spirit and the church it doesn't Paul doesn't tell us so it's not a, it's not an issue but God is truly restraining and it makes you wonder you know when when Joseph Stalin say was raised to power was that satan's attempt and then cuz he he doesn't know satan doesn't know when god's going to r- remove the restraint Is he rising up or raising up a man of lawlessness in every generation that he hopes may be ready to take position, this position? But he cannot take the position until God allows him to. And so that reveals to us, we're perfectly safe, aren't we? Our enemy can only do what God allows him to do. So when the enemy wants to do things to you, and he does, he can only do what God allows him to do. And when God allows him to do things, God says to you, I have given you sufficient power to handle it, to handle every situation that comes your way, and to handle it as Christ would, according to your king. And see, when the Messiah comes, the true Messiah, there's no match. There's the match between them is it's ridiculous. The scales are tipped very heavily in favor of the true Lord. So verse 8 or verse eight starts with, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Right? Those are tricky things that are going to deceive a lot of people. And with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And Jesus said to Pilate, "All those who are of the truth, hear my voice." And that's why we're not fooled. That well, that's why we should not be fooled. And that's what we're doing in Bible class. Partly, you know, there's a lot of things that we're learning, but one of the things that we're learning is how not to be fooled. And we can be easily fooled. So, for the mystery of lawlessness, he says, is already at work. Right? That's in verse 7. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. It's already at work. Meaning, and just the one thing I'm going to pull out for you today, there's many things that the beast will do that have already been at work for ages. You're not surprised by them. The fact that he's going to rule the world from one position, you know, does that seem odd to you? And say, no, people have been trying to do this forever. Do the elites in our world now want to rule the world? And say, well, yeah. Every year they meet in Davos or something, someplace like that, and they connive, twisting their little slidely whiplash mustaches, conniving on how they're going to take away our freedoms and and have, you know, one world... 1984, George Orwell had three, there were three land masses of, over which all the elites, well, there was only a few elites, ruled everything. And they always constantly kept them at war on purpose. And then friend would be foe, and then foe would be friend, and on and on and on it went. Because Orwell was smart enough to realize that this is how the world has worked. Should we be shocked? Should we be scared? Is it better to give than it is to receive? What about when you're in a situation where so much has been taken from you and God has allowed it by these rulers? And you don't have much. You're very poor. Is it still better to give or should you start thinking about receiving? Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you're poor. Maybe you have nothing. Should you still be concerned with giving? That's the king. All right? Is that our king? Standing before the assembly of Jews who were yelling out crucify him crucify. Standing before Pilate. Standing before the Sanhedrin about to lose his life and to be judged for the sins of the world, though he is the only truly innocent man in all of human history, he is going to die for us, and yet does he say, I need to receive? Even from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. From the cross, he says to the murderer on his right, today you'll be with me in paradise. To John, take care of my mother, right? Always giving. And how would that work out for him? And we will see. We will see. Because there's, why is it better to give than it is to receive? All right. So, first, one world ruler. Satan's masterpiece is not an original. Okay? It's been attempted. This, I love this painting. Oh, is that him? Yes. Uh, this is surrender of the Gallic chieftain. It's a painting. Obviously, no one was there taking a snapshot. But this uh, 52 BC, uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar, conquered Gaul. The Gaul of it all. Terrible joke, sorry. Uh, he con- this is France and Spain and everything. So, here's the thing. Um, first off, this is an original. The Roman Empire, They, you know, uh, could you Im- Could you imagine that they the Roman Empire would ever say, well, you know, we've conquered enough, maybe we should stop? Would they have just if they could, if they had the resources and the brains to do it, could they would they have kept going and conquered the world? Of course. But they conquered their world, which is the Mediterranean. They ruled it all. Here's a great is such a great lesson. Caesar's an emperor. What did Rome start as? A republic. Now, a republic is is what we have. Rome started this. It was perhaps the first, I think the first. But, you know, what built the republic and made it so great for hundreds of years is that was the citizenry. And the citizenry were agrarians. They were farmers. They were smart mentally. They were tough physically. They were... Uh, could solve problems. They knew how to work together to make things work. And so they formed a republic. And the republic was basically built on a middle class. Yeah? And then they decided, you know what? We should conquer. And as soon as they thought they should conquer, they threw away that which made them great. And so what does that tell us? What makes power, true power, is not what you have without. It's how you think within. That's true power. And true power, even in a nation, was a place where people were free and respected each other and loved their neighbors, right? These are laws that God has set down. And when they kept that, they were strong. But as soon as they said, you know what? We're going to go conquer them and take their stuff. You just threw away. That's what made you great. This is the seeds of destruction right here. It took a while. But as soon as the emperors came in, the republic was gone. And then you end up with guys like Nero. Caligula. Not good. Caesar went into Gaul in 58 B.C. Here's his campaign. I love learning history in Bible class. And in a nine-year period, killed a million people and enslaved another million. Okay? However, this was billed as a good thing. Why is it good? Well, you know, Caesar or all, the, all those who were back in Rome making a lot of money off of this, they could say, well, look, we're going to build you some aqueducts. Really? aqueduct? Yeah, we're going to put in aqueducts, and you're going to have clean water. You don't have to run up to the mountains to get it. It's going to come right to you. Wow. Indoor plumbing, kind of? Yeah, sure. And they're going to give them freedom, so to speak. You know, I don't know, uh, ways of Rome. And, by the way, Christianity will spread here. And that's not because God needs a million people dead to spread the gospel. The gospel is going to go where it's going to go. Now, would you say that it was worth it to get running, let's call it indoor plumbing, and a million of your citizens were murdered and another million were taken into slavery? they say, but I got running water. All for their own good. That's the deception. You see it today. We know that the man of sin in the tribulation will rule a world empire. This is not new. The Romans ruled the Mediterranean Sea and tried to conquer. They did conquer and plunder civilizations around it. Here's what the Romans did. They took those people that made their republic strong. They made them soldiers and sent them away to fight, to plunder, to take. Meanwhile, the elites who do not go to war are at home and they still need goods and services. So they import the slaves from this place to run the farms and to run the goods and services. And meanwhile, the good people who really build the strength of your nation, you have deported to get you stuff, and then you have imported slaves to do your stuff. And the elite get richer and richer and richer, and the country gets uh, weaker and weaker. That's called imperialism. The success of the entire Roman Empire, what made the Roman Empire successful, was destroyed as soon as they wanted to conquer the world. The seeds of it, it didn't happen overnight. It never happens overnight. Decay is slow, but it comes from within. So as soon as I start to think, you know, I deserve a little recognition. Well, where's it going to come from? It has to come from another person. And therefore, you, to get it, don't you have to in some way conquer their, their attention? Conquer their soul? It's like your little tiny imperialism. I want people to rec- People should recognize what I do. People should do what I expect them to do and do it right. And that absolutely is true. We should all do what is right. But how should we look at one another when we don't do it right? Should we be giving? Considering, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, consider how to stimulate one another to loving good deeds. Are we doing that? Have this mind in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus and not be conceited. But he laid down his life in obedience to the point of death. And, they, and Paul said, Have this mind which is also in it was also in Christ Jesus. Herein lies the clue. To the vast difference between the Antichrist and the true Christ. It is the condition of their hearts. Not what they have, but the condition of their hearts. It is better to give than it is to receive. Paul mentions this quote from the Lord. It's not in the Gospels, by the way. It's in Acts chapter 20. Paul quotes it in a meeting with pastors in Ephesus. He says, the Lord said this, It's better to give than it is to receive. But here's the context, Acts 20. Be on guard for yourselves, he says to these pastors. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul says there are going to be attacks upon the church that are going to come from within. And then he says, the Lord himself said it's better to give than it is to receive. Now he's talking to the leadership of the church. It's better to give than it is to receive. What would the church become? Say, I don't know, 200 years after Paul. 300 years. When in Rome, it would take and not receive, right? What happened to it? What happened to the what would become the Catholic Church? It lost its heart. It lost the heart. Rome lost the heart. Roman Christianity. Right? We have a book of Romans in the Bible that is one of Paul's masterpieces. And, it, and in that community, they lost their heart because they changed from giving. They changed from that kingdom to this kingdom. They changed from that Christ to the false Christ. This can sneak into our own selves. The counterfeit king, the beast, he receives. If you don't worship him, you die. If you don't take his mark, you don't get anything. You'll die of starvation. We see in the book of Revelation, I think it's in chapter 6, where all the, the martyrs of the tribulation are all at the throne of God, all saying to the Lord, how long until we're avenged? And he, in a way, says, sit tight. It's coming. Don't rush me. <laughs> British Empire. Here's a, This is a great one. This is a stamp, as you can see. Uh, Around 1900, the British Empire ruled 12 million square miles. As the the saying went, the empire on which the sun never sets. And and a little later, you could add a little piece of eastern United States there. But weren't United States yet. Uh, Actually, sorry, they were in 1893. Uh, But um, anyway, I mean prior to that. But, you know, this is a massive empire. Yeah, well into uh, the establishment of the independence of the United States of America and still with a, a massive maritime power. So they're able to – so what happened here? What happened to them? This is no longer true because when you go and conquer – and say, and out of all the empires in the history of the world, Egypt, Babylon, Greece, Alexander the Great – not so great, by the way – Uh, Smart, though, and massively brilliant on the battlefield, but a killer. Julius Caesar. How many times have you heard about how wonderful Julius Caesar is? He's a killer. And he is smart, brilliant general, has a lot of good or had a lot of good things going for him, but a killer. (laughs) You know, kind of overshadows things. Today we spend hundred, America now. This hasn't gone away. It's my whole point. This continues and has continued throughout history. It's not a novel concept that the beast would have world reign. Today we spend hundreds of billions of dollars on foreign nations. Yeah, I'm not going to pick on any, you know. I'm not. It's not my job ever up here to get political. But a lot of it's going to Ukraine right now. Uh, now, if you went to and our, our friend Sue Halverson was here uh, last weekend, and we asked her about, you know, what's it like? And she lives in San Francisco. It's not good in downtown San Francisco. Yeah, One billion could be spent on, you know, I'm not coming up with political solutions. Don't get me wrong. But if you're shipping out hundreds of billions of dollars to places that are not here, while there are massive problems here at home. Massive. That could be dealt with. Yes, with money, and put smart people who could solve the problem. Let's get it solved. Let's do what we can to try and solve the problem. But that's not a concern. Why? Because when you send those hundreds of billions of dollars overseas, they come back to you if you're an elite. You're no different. They're no different. They say, well, wow, they're so evil. They're no different than that guy. This has been around forever. And it will come to its apex With a man of sin. There's going to be zero fairness about it. At least now, you know, you can at least vote the bums out, as they say, or whatever. At least we can still vote. At least we can still protest. There'll come a day when you can't. You protest and you're dead. It's coming. The world's elites right now have a vision of a transnational ruling class. It consists of elites drawn mostly from the business, political, media, and academic worlds with the power to issue edicts on climate change, public health, diversity, human rights, and even taxes that will override the will of national majorities. That's a quote from Victor David Hanson in his latest speech at Hillsdale College. I'm a huge fan of EDH. Everything he does, I read... Uh, you know, this is the the World Economic Forum or whatever. They're pretty open about it. They want to rule. And and here's the thing. It's good for you. We'll take care of everything. It's good for you. And now, here's where we shake our fists, shake our hands, these bums. How are we going to get them out? How are we going to overcome? It's not going to happen. In the midst of this unfairness, that is creeping to greater unfairness and greater injustice to the point of when God removes his restraint completely and all freedoms are gone. God's going to say, give and don't receive. Not not don't receive, but more blessed. That's how the Lord says it. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Do not lose the mind of your king no matter how bad things get. Do not move into the mind of the false king as he puts pressure on you. Look at Revelation 13. Go to Revelation 13. Now, Revelation 13 as we'll spend some time here this week, because this is where this one, this beast, shows up in the book of Revelation. We'll also see him in the book of Daniel, and this is parallel to the book of Daniel here. Uh, the book of Daniel is in my notes, but for the sake of time, we won't go there today. In Revelation 13:8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name is not written written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Wonderfully interesting. It's The unbelievers, right? If you're in the book of the Lamb, it means you're a believer. That's all it means. You are a believer as you have been elected before the foundation of the world. That's why you're in God's book. And so... Who will worship him? But my point is, all will worship him. That's what we want to focus on, right? The whole world. He is, you know, but as we've seen through Caesar, through the British Empire, we could have used a hundred examples, Egypt, Babylon, Uh, and, you know, sadly in Israel, (laughs) there's some pretty bad kings in Israel and in Judah who forsook the Lord, and wanted to receive. That's all they wanted to do. There are a few good kings in Judah. No good kings in Israel. But, uh, meaning the northern kingdom. But in Judah, the southern kingdom, there's a few good ones. And those few all have one thing in common. They worship the Lord in their hearts. Every one of them. So <laughs> the one thing they had in common. You, hear, you don't read any descriptions about how strong they are in battle or how Uh, eloquent they are in speech or anything like that. The only reason that made them good was their heart. And God blessed them for it. Look at uh, verse 1, Revelation 13. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were uh, blasphemous names. So these... Well, look at this. These ten horns, these seven heads, they represent kings and kingdoms that he rules. And the beast, which I saw was like a leopard. This is taken right out of Daniel. Leopard and his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And these creatures depict kingdoms that have been before. They're Babylon, Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. And he, the beast of iron, say well, like, oh, it's not here, but his mouth, like the mouth of a lion, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And this, as you may have heard it, this is a revived Roman Empire. It is. It's the the continuation of really what it is is the of the times of the Gentiles. The Gentiles will trample Jerusalem underfoot, the Lord said, until the times of the Gentiles are complete. And who trampled Jerusalem under four? It was Rome. And that time, even though Rome is truly not an empire right now, but the times of the Gentiles continue until this one comes. And when he comes, and he's of these people, of that empire, all all I ever say of him is that he's a Gentile. I (laughs) I know plenty of people who try to identify his nationality and all that and... That's fine. You can have fun with that. I don't I don't think it's possible. But we know he's a gentile. That you can say for sure. And he has all power. And where does his power come from? Satan. And he has a kingdom. And that what's that kingdom like? How is he so different from your Lord? Now, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 1, there's nothing new under the sun. He says it this way. All things are wearisome. The eye's not satisfied with seeing, the ear's not, nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, mankind is implacable. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. He says that there's someone says, "Hey, look at this, it's new." He says it's already existed for ages. The desire to conquer, the desire to have people worship you, the desire to rule the world, the desire to receive instead of give, this has been around since the beginning. So this man of sin, what does he represent? Hence the title. Sin. It's everything that's wrong with us. Without Christ. And you and I are constantly, continually tempted to it. What I find wonderfully ironic is that the man of sin wants what God alone can have. Sovereign rule. He wants what God alone can have. When we want people to recognize us, to say thanks to us when they should, to do for us, to uh, whatever, acknowledge us, we want the same thing. Right? We want sovereign rule over our own hearts. And actually, in that case, you want sovereign rule over their hearts. Wouldn't it be great if everybody did exactly as you wanted and and said all as you expected and did everything that you expected and wanted? Wouldn't that be awesome? That would make you God. (laughs) That would be terrible. That would be terrible. Isn't it true that God puts people in our lives that don't do those things? Isn't it true that God actually makes sure that when you start doing righteous work in in, in accordance with serving him, that he is sure to make sure, I've said sure a lot here in this sentence, that people aren't going to see it, that people aren't going to recognize it. that people actually, who are good people, may fight against you in the accomplishment of what you choose to do, which is a good thing. and I, that that should be a marriage seminar right there. Don't don't you recognize this what you say it in your head. Don't you recognize what I'm doing over here? Can you acknowledge me? Can you get out of my way? So the Lord said it's better to give than it is to receive. Why is that true? <laughs> Brilliant simple answer. Why is that true? When you give to another, they receive, obviously. Then you both rejoice. And you rejoice that you are able to give. They rejoice because you help them. This isn't just like, we're we're not talking about, uh, you know, you just giving gifts to people randomly. Which, of course, you could do, I guess, if you wanted to. But this is about, you know, consider how to stimulate one another to loving good deeds. So this is actually your service in your spiritual gift and outside of whatever your spiritual gift is to serve others and that they benefit from it. And then you both rejoice together. And here's and there's another lie that can creep in here is that either the giver or the the one receiving is elevated above the other, right? In our world right now, they're pushing this thing that those who are to be given to uh, are elevated above the givers, right? So the poor—it's a really a, the idea of romanticism, which is another thing that is a forgery, you know. Going back to the paintings, romanticism sounds like you know you elevate the poor for no other reason. Then they're poor. You elevate the serf, the poor, the you know the the slave. You elevate them for no other reason than that they're slaves. But no one should be elevated for that reason. Actually, no one should be elevated for any reason. And Christ would say, "Well, the greatest of you is the one who serves, because I serve." Christ says. So look at Philippians two, five. Go to Philippians two. When you give now this when we see giving, you know, always when you're looking for the true picture of virtue, go to the Lord. Be careful about looking at it in people. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you can, you can see how in people, people are virtuous and emulate it. And I, I don't see anything wrong with that other than make sure you know this is a person. Because you can elevate a person who you want to emulate, and then eventually you're going to see their sin because they're, they're, nobody here is perfect. And then you might have an opposite reaction. It's called iconoclasm where you like now you want to destroy them because they didn't live up to your expectations. The Lord Jesus will always live up to your expectations. So we look to him. Verse 5, starting with, just at the end of it, we're Christ Jesus. We'll go back to verse 1 in a second. Just look at him, Christ Jesus, at the end of verse 5, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. This Greek word kenosis, it truly does mean to empty. But he didn't empty himself of his deity. He set it aside. We say, well, what's the big deal? Right? He sets aside his deity for a little while, has some fun as a man. You know, slums it a little bit, I guess. And then, but he takes his deity right back on. However that works. But can you and I possibly imagine what it was like for God himself to be limited to the finiteness, the weakness, the limitedness of mankind? We cannot fathom it. You know, it would be like every strength that you have taken away from you right now. And you like fall to the ground as a, in a lump of goo. Your muscles stop working. Your eyelids won't open. Your mouth won't work. Nothing works. And that's not even close. To going from deity to humanity. Not losing your deity, but restraining yourself and restricting yourself. That is the true king. Now, false king, what does he do? Lower himself or elevate himself? The, true, the, the false king, all he wants to do is receive. The true king, the first thing he does, before he does, he utters a word or a coup, I guess we could say as an infant, is to take a step down to the magnitude that you and I couldn't possibly comprehend. But what we can comprehend is that it is incredible, the sacrifice that he makes, so that his kingdom will have you in it. The Antichrist, if you don't worship him, you're dead. The Antichrist wants to elevate himself. Christ demeans himself so that all can be saved. And that's what it says here. He emptied himself in verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why in the world would he do such a thing? Unlike the beast and all those who came before the beast uh, and acted like him, meaning all the kingdoms that wanted to imperialize the world around them, to gain the kingdoms of the world, Jesus risked losing his kingdom. Now, I I know saying he risked losing it is a tricky thing theologically. Because could Jesus, there's this whole conundrum, could Jesus sin, could he not sin? You know, he's God, so he can't sin, but he's man, he's tempted to sin, and we do that back and forth. We really have no answer to that. But, you know, he puts himself in a very vulnerable situation where one outburst while he's being tortured, or one... One sin, any sin, he's not qualified, and our salvation is not secured. And therefore, that kingdom can't be built. So in a way, he's risking everything so that you can be in it. I mean, he's really rolling the dice so that you and I can be in it. What does the Antichrist do? Now, we have to go to us. What do we do? Are we willing to risk what we love for the sake of others uh, you don't have to answer you can nod your head you know it doesn't matter to me I, you know your heart it does matter to me don't don't get me wrong but your true answer to that can only be between you and God and you won't know until the time comes anyway I mean we can say that we're ready for that and I, and there's so many situations in your life that are little things that actually, Once you come to know these truths, you'll start to see in your everyday life, hey, you know what? I think of myself and what I deserve a lot. And that's God leading you, teaching you, training you in the the arena that is the testing world. Remember that analogy I used? Those trials are your personal trainers. And they're testing you to reveal to you And to get you ready for when it truly does come, whatever that is, that that test. I mean, are you willing to give of yourself and risk losing for the benefit of another? And may I throw this in, for the benefit of your enemy? It doesn't ever mean condoning sin. It doesn't ever mean you never do that giving in to sin, sinning with them, that's not helping anybody. But virtuous, righteous, strong and just, temperate, self-controlled, charitable, with agape love, that you're willing to risk what is dear to you to help another. That's the true king. A great example of this is he said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham's response in Hebrew is, hineni. Hineni means, Here I am. It's the first word that Samuel says in the Bible. It's really amazing. You see, in biblical narrative, the first thing that a character says in the narrative is depictive of their entire character. Samuel says, here I am. Abraham says, here I am. Take your son Isaac, whom you love. Take him to a place that I will show you. And sacrifice him to me. That makes no sense at all. I mean, not only is it the greatest risk that I could ever risk, Abraham would say, because I love him more than I love myself. Think of yourself sacrificing your child. (laughs) No, thank you. And the whole plan, Isaac doesn't have any children yet, so he's the seed, right? This was told clearly to Abraham that through Isaac, the nations will come from you. If you kill him, there's no nation. The whole thing's over. And yet God says, do it. Abraham, at that point, doesn't even argue with him. At least in this, in the narrative, it says that Abraham just went and did it. And at the last moment, God stayed his hand. But what it, God's response to Abraham is that, Now I know you will do all that I say. And Abraham calls that place Yavah Yareh, or Jehovah Jireh, as we all like to say. But the Lord provides. He will always provide. Our king will always provide. In this world that has the birth pangs running up to the great tribulation where this jerk king will try and rule the world, and we're in the, the forerunning birth pangs of that, people wanting to rule, people who are selfish, people who are uh, lustful. You know, what is the root of all evil? The love of money. All of that continues to go on. And we're soaked in it. And God says to us, look, I am putting you through this time with me in you. And my word in you. My spirit in you. And I'm asking you to give and not receive. Now, you will receive. But leave that in my hands. To give. Sacrificially, and think about it. Be a giver to all people, not just money either. Time, with things that are more valuable to us than money, and more often. Energy, time, prayer. And to give. And to know that I, Yavah, will Yare, I will provide. As Christians, even devout Christians, we're in danger of being absorbed with self. Are we not? With what self gets, what self should get, what others should be doing and giving to us. We even say that it is right that they do such and such for us. But this is not the mind of the king. Uh, he gave a teaching similar to this to the disciples, and they said, increase our faith. <laughs> I would say the same. Wouldn't we all? And that's when he he tells them a parable about an unworthy slave who does all that he's supposed to do and then considers himself unworthy. And he said, you also, you are unworthy slaves when you have done all that you should have done. I don't deserve anything. Only what the king will bestow upon me. And he will bestow much. So, as verse 5, you're there, just read it. You can read it. Uh, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And uh, when we pick it up next Sunday, we'll continue reading in this passage because often we stop at somewhere around verse 5 or verse 8 and don't keep going. And, And when you keep going, you'll see Paul delineate truly what our mind is to be. To sum up, it is the character of your heart that matters, not what you possess. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, get them all down. That's your life, the character of your heart. We're not taking vows of poverty, we're not relinquishing all power, but we have temperance. Temperance means I know how far to go and Something, and no farther, that self-control. We're prudent, we practical, common sense, through the wisdom of Christ. And we are just, and we are courageous. Our outward possessions and circumstances mean nothing compared to the character of Christ in our heart. With his heart, all our things gain their meaning. And I mean their things and and the people in our lives. With Christ's heart, they gain their meaning, and then we find out how it is that we are to deal with them, with people, uh, how to give to them, how to serve them, that person in your life today, and how to use your things properly, all things. We see them as God sees them, and when we do, we use them as He wills. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for uh, the truth that comes from knowledge of prophecy, even, that applies to us today. We know, Father, there's nothing new under the sun. Let us not get anxious or crazy about the things that are happening in our world. They have always happened. They will get worse when you lift your restraint upon the world, Some. Of us may experience, not the tribulation, but worse things to come. We know, Father, that in whatever trials you bring our way, that you are in control. May we have the heart of your Son, and not the heart that we think we deserve to have, but a heart that gives graciously and sacrifices as you would have us do. These are the glory of your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. Let's take our offering this morning. I just got a letter from early Ernie Millen who said he always appreciates every time I drink out of my mug because of my mug is a picture of me kicking an enormous soccer ball that Ernie and I blew up with his high-pressure air, high air compressor. I don't even know how to say that stuff. This massive tank of air anyway. And uh, this was used at his redneck wedding. Um, they put this soccer ball out in the field with all the cars that were driving demolition derby around the field, smashing into each other. That is a good old boy time <laughs> to talk about, right? Ernie, love you, buddy. Long to come back. They're in uh, Waymart, Pennsylvania. If you find yourself driving through Waymart, Pennsylvania, you are lost. But look them up. Uh, no, let's pray for our offering. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of giving. You give to us so that we can give, That's we talked about today. Thank you, Father, for the enlightenment of truth that makes us gracious, or motivates us to be so. Uh, When it comes to giving, Father, we know that the amount doesn't matter. What matters is the character of our heart. So we ask for your blessing upon this offering in Christ's name. Amen. Let's close in prayer. We thank you, Father, for opportunity and privilege of being together. Thank you for the gift of your Son. And that gift I offer to anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. If you have not believed in Christ, you're listening to me. It's not a, I offer the gift, but it's not mine to give. It comes from God. God sent his Son into the world to die for the sins of the whole world. He became a man and died in your behalf. was judged for your sins, for the sins of all. And therefore, if you believe upon him, you will be saved, delivered from sin and death, and will spend eternity with God in heaven. It's the greatest offer that's ever been offered by miles. But you have to believe upon him. You have to know that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. You can't do it on your own. You cannot represent yourself before God and think that you can enter heaven on your own merits. You cannot. But you can enter into heaven on Christ's merits. Through him and his work on the cross, he has saved you. He died and he rose again on the third day, showing that he defeated death and he will give you resurrection, resurrection life through faith in him. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. We thank you, Father, for all things. In Christ's name, amen.